Welcome back. This is episode eight of the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. And for the first time since episode one, I'm sitting in Rory's office. We're having a cup of tea. So that was, if you remember, Rory, that was last uh, November, I think, when we had Anne Pickering's episode. Uh, and we're just squeezing this in as the, the kind of May episode. It's the 30th of May. Um, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Great, as always, to have a cup of tea with you at, at tea time. Um, Universitas is is full. We've got 120 executives all over the campus questioning what is their own leadership style. Um, and the, the company transformation has gone from strength to strength. So very good things. And it was interesting. I saw, you know, your opening session today um, and, and, you know, just thinking about the journey that you've been on in your ed- executive teaching career uh, and a lot of that started at ESA Business School, right? So, you know, I, this is Wednesday of, of, of the week, you know, final day in May. Uh, and this week I've been teaching on an executive program at ESA with uh, Eurovision Academy, which is, you know, um, Natalie and Frederic, we're going to hear them in the main interview coming up in a few minutes. Um, and it's one of the longest running programs that I've had at, at ESA. And I was just thinking that ESA really is, even though we never met there, it really is part of our common story, right? And even thinking in the last couple of weeks, you know, they've been so successful in the last few years. That's four years in a row that they've been ranked number one uh, overall in executive education by the Financial Times. And uh, yeah, you kind of started your journey there in executive education. And in many ways, you started the journey for ESE in executive education, right? So how did that go? Yeah, it was about 20 years ago. And ESE had a good base in Spain in Spanish and they had a good recipe, basic recipe for success, but they didn't have any international clients. And they had some very good academic partnerships with Harvard, Wharton, MIT, Stanford. And so with a a clean sheet Greenfield site 20 years ago, we started to to do so-called international executive education. And that's when they started being part of these rankings, and they were a long way from number one. And it was, you know, small, small, small successes to begin with. Some big companies, like I remember Boeing and Hewlett Packard, um, felt that they'd found some very special secret places, like your best possible restaurant in a French side street that no one else knows about. And they, they kind of acted a bit like that uh, because they were getting incredible, incredible quality and incredible value and value for money. And that's, that's how we started. And from there, strength to strength. And now, as you say, last few years, they're, they're ahead of all these schools globally, not just in the Spanish world, but number one in executive education globally is, is quite a feat. Yeah, it's impressive. So you did your MBA there and then you were hired then to be the director of, of executive education, right? Um, it's interesting to hear those attitudes from those big companies. But what, what was your strategy at the time to just, you know, be more than just the kind of the well-kept secret that does good quality, but really to, to take it to the next level? Well, first of all, Barcelona is a nice place to go if you're an executive and you want a week off um, from the workplace. You know, both of you, you and I are from Glasgow. If I'm an executive and I'm sent away in a program, Personally, I'd rather go to Barcelona than Glasgow. 
Um, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so, so location is one thing. And then they had a very open attitude. You know, they didn't, they weren't stuck to a specific methodology or, or true heritage in international executive education. They could, that way they could adapt um, to the market needs. Just at the same time, big schools like Harvard, they wanted some kind of a presence in Europe and, and they'd started moving further east. And they felt that, you know, ESA and was a great partner because they never felt that they were going to be threatened by them. In fact, it's a bit like the history of disruptive innovation that you, you, start, you start with a small partner who, who maybe does less quality product than you do and is never going to threaten you. Um, and that partner sort of lives off your scraps. And then 10, 15 years later, your partner is eating your lunch. Yeah. And, and yes, they certainly done that. No, it's interesting. And, you know, just thinking on my own experiences there, you know, I started researching there at the school 2007, maybe. Started teaching in executive programs about 2009. So it's kind of about 10 years of being in different programs and, you know, not, not far off, maybe 100 programs and, and really looking at that at close quarters. And I've often reflected, you know, what makes the difference, right? And, um, and having taught also at other schools, IMD and, and IE and CIBS in Shanghai, you know, all excellent in their own way. And, uh, you know, I think to put it in a kind of perspective in terms of what ESA does well, a lot of it's to do with culture. And I remember the first meeting that I had with a, a professor at ESE when I first came to Barcelona, that was maybe 2006. Um, and he was talking at the time, and you were saying that maybe they're a long way off, number one. And the professor was talking about how the dean at the time had the stated aim and the vision of being number one in the world. And maybe not a lot of people took him seriously. And I don't even think the professor that was talking to me at the time really believed it. But there was that vision, and I think that's the first thing, right? You know, to have that bold vision, that ambitious vision. But the one thing that I remember from that conversation was about the drive for excellence. And he told me about how even the gardeners on campus were really motivated to keep the campus incredibly pristine, right? And, and he just talked about this, about how even just taking out the weeds from the terrace and the campus and everything was manicured lawns and the plants and the flowers and I always remembered that, and it's as if, and then subsequently, you know, working in those near 100 programs, the culture of excellence is there. You know, no matter if it's the gardener, no matter if it's the dean, no matter if it's the academic director, no matter if it's the program director, there is that real motivation and drive for that degree of excellence that I don't think you see necessarily everywhere, right? You know, there's other things that other schools may do better, but I think that, that was very, it was, it was very memorable for me, that, that little anecdote. I think they are driven by a purpose to change the world for the better. And I think many business schools, they count on excellent faculty. And each faculty is, is the leader in their field. But they're very much islands. And the essay manages to, to, to pull them all together. And they're also very good at attracting top quality visiting faculty from other schools. Who are delighted to come to, to Spain and enter into the sort of upper echelons in society and, and have six months or or some kind of sabbatical year in Barcelona. So, so yes, he's always got very fresh, new quality professors 
coming through, and they've been very, very progressive. Um, also with with women faculty and the balance of, of women faculty on on the roster. So I do think ESA started off as a breath of fresh air and has managed to keep that that freshness going. Yeah, and and I guess it's about you know how sustainable can that be, right? I mean the rankings are quite a relatively new phenomena. And I think schools over the years have had, you know, three or four years at the top and then they've maybe dropped off a bit. So it'll be interesting to see what happens going into the future. Um, And I think just, you know, from both of our experiences there, I just, you know, you're talking about, you know, excellence from different areas. I just think even, you know, the programme directors, it isn't just faculty that you may get in other schools, but I think the programme directors are really good. And I've had some great experiences over the years with different programme directors you know, people that you know as well. So I just wanted to kind of shout out, you know, Kit Meyer, uh, Pepe Orecchio. He, no, Pepe's not a programme director now, but, you know, in the time, he did a really great job there and, you know, and helped me personally get started with a lot of my teaching there. Uh, so I just wanted to note that. And, um, and of course, Adun Yon's daughter. Yeah. Who, who's just really driven exec ed, executive education on in an international fashion now is, is leading the charge at, at ESA's campus in, in New York. Yeah, I mean, Needham did a, a phenomenal job of the open programs, right? I mean, there was the AM Advanced Management Program, Program for Leadership Development, and she was in charge of bringing that from one to two editions a year, and, and it was such a successful kind of couple of years, and I think she's enjoying life and still driving hard in, in New York, so it's great to see Needham doing well there. Um, so that was good, Rory, just talking about that as, a, as an intro to this. So this is episode eight. We are talking to Natalie and Frederic from Eurovision Broadcasting Union. So enjoy episode eight. Thanks again. Cheers. All the best. So welcome back. Uh, I'm at ESA Business School today, uh, freshly ranked number one uh, in the world on executive education programs by Financial Times. And I've been teaching this week on one of my longest-running programs, actually. It's the Eurovision Broadcasting Union Academy, which is a collection of senior uh, directors in the journalism news industry from the different uh, public service uh, broadcasters across Europe. So I'm here with Nathalie Labourdet, the head of the academy, and Frédéric Franz, who is the director of training. So welcome to you both. Welcome. Um, so maybe the first thing to, to ask, uh, Natalie, what is the EBU? So EBU is the largest um, association in the world of broadcasters. We have 73 members across six, 70, no, 56 countries. And the idea of a professional association is to provide services to members. So we do... Um, exchange of news items, we do legal advice, we do some um, standardization in terms of technology, and as Academy, we help our members to be ready for the future, to be fit for the future. That's the realm of, and the remit of EBU Academy. Mm-hmm. And many people will know Eurovision, the name Eurovision, um, through the song contest, I guess. So, you know, how does, how does that fit in? Is that... Um, a, a big part of your year? Is that just something that is... It's part of the services we deliver. It's part of the... We also deliver content. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the content is news, 
exchange. We exchange a lot of radio content. We are maybe the world glo global uh, concert hall. Uh, we exchange a lot of concerts. And Eurovision is um, the, a very ancient um, co-production where, as everybody knows, uh, national singers compete to win the Eurovision Song Contest. So it's a, an event uh, organized by us and co-created with a member who is winning, who won the competition the year before. Yeah, really interesting. And, and Frederick, why, why is it important? Um, so Natalie talked about being fit for the future uh, and in your role in, in managing the training aspect. Why, why is it important to come here to, to ESA and bring these, these, these people here? So first, when we wanted to create such a program for directors, for EU members, we decided that we needed to find the best possible partners. Um, we were not only looking for a good business school, but also a school which had media experience, which was not so common at the time. So we, we launched a worldwide tender process, and we ended up choosing ESA and UCLA because we, they had such an experience. Yeah, and that's interesting. So in module two, you go to Los Angeles and you do uh, some field trips also within the industry there, right? Um, and, and how valuable is that for the participants that they have this journey over, I think, three modules? Is it six months in total? Um, the fact that we're going to Los Angeles and, and New York for the third module, it's um, really valuable because we meet industry leaders that wouldn't travel to Europe to meet our participants. So every year we try to identify uh, the companies which are really changing the game. So in the past we visited Netflix, we visited Google, Vice News, the New York Times, and uh, really if you want to meet these guys, you have to go there. So that's yeah. what we do. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, again, as Natalie said, being fit for the future, and if we think about news as an industry, then it has been disrupted to a, to a great extent with the players like you know uh, Netflix and even thinking about you know closer to, to to Spain companies like Telefonica who are getting into kind of uh, original content production and, and things like that. So is dealing with disruption is that one of the main themes that you have to um, you know uh, have in the content of, of these programs? Well, one of the professors is talking about the perfect storm. She's really this idea that uh, um, public service broadcasters had really a quiet time since they started because um, they started as monopolies. They were basically the only TV stations in the country. And now um, the market is completely different. People can choose among hundreds of TV channels. They can choose other ways to get informed and to be entertained. And so we need to cope with a completely different environment. And this is why we are trying to help them to understand through this program. And, and Natalie, has that been difficult for, for the members in the EBU, just these changes and this disruption in the last, how has it been the last five years, the last 10 years? What's, what's the dynamic there with the, the rapid the change? I think we can speak about a journey. Um, you have to follow all the good management lessons that we learn, you have to practice. It's like your um, teaching and your learning, Stephen. You have to practice every day. It's not because you come once at the IESC or UCLA that you would become a super manager or super leader. Every day you have to practice. Okay, 
how can I use the theoretical model I learned from Professor X or Y? How can I, if I want to change this program, if I want to change my attitude vis-à-vis -vis, uh, my team, what can, what models? And the idea is that really they learn the model, they use the models. And what we know, and we are very happy about this, is that we have good um, feedback from alumni. Um, they have been applying the lessons and what they have learned into their daily job, which is the ID. And we could see some very good results. Some we have so from, from some um, particular people, they are really been changing their way of working. Let's say, for example, speaking about news, including social media in foreign news or creating a new studio. So they, they used all the models of negotiation, um, preparing the strategy in order to change the, um, to make it happen. That's interesting. And on a personal level, so this could be as a result of these recent changes, um, but also news, you know, as a 24-hour industry, potentially. Um, how have you seen the people who work in this sector in terms of their health and well-being? Is there any comments that you have there? Um, I think what we saw is mostly the changes of the people who attended this program. Because on quite a few occasions, we were surprised when we met a few years later people who had come. Um, they had lost 10 kilos. We told us they changed their habits, trying to maybe do some more walking, maybe to um, not look at their phone so often. And uh, I remember especially one particular case we were really struck because the person was um, probably a bit overweight. And when we saw her again later, she was much more healthy. And, and she said it was um, really the benefits of this program that she realized that uh, she kept on doing what she had been doing all these years. She could go into serious health for and she changed it. And it becomes among us a kind of uh, common, not joke, but common vocabulary. What is your marginal, marginal gain? So what did you do? So, for example, Frederick and I now, we have this habit that I go walk when I, when I'm, I am in Geneva, I walk back home. So for many, many years I did it alone. And then Frederick, he had to walk because he wanted to do the marginal gain. So now what we do is whenever he's at the office and I am at the office and I go back home, we work back together. So that is very good because during the day, we can really focus on our work, but when we work, we debrief a lot of things and it's, it's really, really nice. So we invent new things, we design new things and, uh, and because we do this together, it's very nice. So it's really now the what is your marginal gain has become among the, the alumni of the executive program, a kind of... Uh, uh, yeah, it's a nice issue to discuss and, and, and I would say a reward. So that's brilliant. It's great to hear. Um, any wishes for the future? Any hopes for the EBU or the Academy? Maybe to have more and more people who would do such a program. Because what we see is that uh, you go to such an experience, you understand new models and you try to speak about these discoveries to your colleagues. And what strikes me is that if they didn't go through it, for them you're basically from another planet. And you could have the best knowledge, best experience, but if you don't have a critical mass of people who have the same knowledge and been through a similar experience, I noticed that it's really hard to move everybody around you. It's basically 
once you have like two or three people being through that, that you start to have a common language to mm. understand how you can change together. But if you're alone, it's really, really difficult. Good point. Yeah. And I, I, would, I would just add that um, what you teach in the daily practice of physical and, and, and health men mentality and mental health and uh, physical health, it applies also to the business. So you have to apply these models on a daily basis very regularly. So to have, so at the end, you know, if we have more and more professionals, as Frederick says, that are handling these tools and using these tools all the time, then the level is higher. And then we can really start implementing things and trial and errors and go forward and move forward. But, because, but you need to move in order to start moving, you know, so, and to keep moving. So that's, I think this journey is absolutely necessary. Great. So many thanks for your time, both Frédéric, Nathalie, and best of luck for the future. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.